Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward podcast, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week in our search for truth, we look at the New South Wales election and what it means for the centre-right. We'll unpack the Mueller report into Trump's alleged collusion with Russia. And regarding Trump, we look at the whole question of post-Trump conservatism and indeed whether Trump himself is post-Trump. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, joined as always by my co-host from RMIT University, Chris Berg. Good morning, Scott. Today we welcome to the show IPA's Director of Communications, Evan Mulholland. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on. And also welcoming back IPA Research Fellow, Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. Great to have you on, Andrew. I've been uh, swatting up on the Claremont Review of Books because I knew you were on, so uh, <laughs> I just want to be able to keep up. And in our final segment on books and culture, we'll be asking Andrew and the others for their picks on uh, what they've been reading, watching or listening to, including Anatomy of Next, New World podcast, We Dish the Dirt on the Dirt, and ask whether Les Mis is actually any good without the songs. If you're listening on iTunes or any of the other great podcast platforms, do not forget to subscribe so you can catch more episodes of Looking Forward. First up, we did have an election in New South Wales on the weekend and the coalition was returned to power. It appears that they have a majority in the parliament, having lost only a couple of seats. Chris Berg, is this a fight back for liberalism or just a victory for light rail? Well, <laughs> well, it's obviously all about light rail. So um, uh, the coalition ha- did lose a couple of seats, some to Labor and some to the Shooters and Fishers Party, but obviously they've been um, returned. There's lots of ways that we can interpret that, um, uh, this victory, whether it's a victory for liberalism or whether it's a victory for the Premier herself, Janet Albrechtson, um, IPA director, and of course, columnist with The Australian um, has very much argued that this is very much about Gladys Berejiklian's um, personality and persona. Um, She argued in the Oz the other day that her success is etched in humility, pragmatism and strength, not unlike the extraordinary ordinariness of one of her biggest supporters, former Liberal Prime Minister John Howard, which I I think that um, argument has a lot to go for it. Even though you you were actually in the um, campaign and you were up there on election day, was this a victory for liberalism or was this a victory for um, the Premier or or what do you think was going on, speaking to voters? Um, I think it's a bit of both. I I think it's a a victory for centre-right ideas in a sense that they'd previously gone to an election on a massive privatisation agenda or 99-year lease agenda, however you want to put it, um, and they were able to uh, argue that and articulate that in a way that voters saw the benefits of that uh, with their massive infrastructure spend. Um, and wherever you go in New South Wales, you can't drive past a, uh, a, a road or drive down a freeway without seeing a construction site, a new train line going up, um, new roads, new bridges. Um, so people actually saw firsthand what the government was doing, and there was a level of competency about that, except maybe for the light rail. Um, one of the things I also think works well is that she just has really a really good ministry, and you don't often get that at a state level. You, you often get the Premier that's uh, quite good and competent, but having an entire ministry that seems to uh, show a level of competence is, is quite rare. But is this is this really is this liberal values? So I mean, the the things that you've mentioned is competence and infrastructure creation. Is that is that what we should be expecting from liberalism at the state level these days, or or don't we have a right to to sort of expect something more than that, something more about values rather than just delivery? Yeah, look, they did have a, have a lot of policies that um, 
you know, a $90 billion infrastructure spend might not be the, the biggest centre-right policy, but there were other policies in play. For example, uh, lifting the payroll tax threshold to a million dollars. It's already the highest, um, which is quite good for smaller businesses and business trying to get a go. I think it's about 750000 but lifting it to a million before they have to pay any payroll tax is quite good, and that's going to enable a whole swag of small businesses to get get a start and um, and, and keep and keep going with their with their businesses. Um, also other policies um, like for example, one of the biggest eye-catching policies among people was um, the fact that the treasurer Dominic Perrottet um, uh, put in a policy around car parks where if you were just 10 minutes over you wouldn't get a fine. Um, and, and so I think that goes into people's idea about authority and... and That's and a those devastating th- attack on the rule of law. <laughs> <laughs> those, yeah, those, those nasty... Uh, those nasty parking but I, th- I, think that, I think that's what it gets to is that... Uh, I, I know that sometimes with elections we want to read into like a big narrative, but state elections in this country, I think, often invite a much more uh, deflationary reading where if you have a halfway competent incumbent uh, up against... Um, a shambolic opposition, and the, you know, the fact that the Labor Party in New South Wales hasn't got over its uh, more recent troubles was sort of revealed in the last few weeks of their campaign. Uh, their messaging was all over the place, and obviously their leader was, well, somewhat idiotic in his commentary. Um, and that was, that was really enough to blow the whole House of Cards down. Was just him talking out of turn, and that showed how weak. Uh, the opposition's campaign had been. I mean, their central point had been... It was actually a point that I agree with, which is that you shouldn't spend that much money on new stadiums for multi-billion dollar businesses. I actually agree with that, but it's not much of a campaign pitch. And so as soon as Michael Daly talked out of turn, as soon as he revealed that perhaps the Labor Party still had some internal problems, that was enough for really everyone to say, well, we'll stick with the halfway competent government that we have. Look, but I'm concerned that this is actually... <laughs> the, the, the the argument that we've mounted here is actually a devastating critique of conservative governments or conservatism or liberalism more generally. Because if you think about it this way, so um, the Berejiklian government has been criticised for a long time for looking quite moderate, particularly from um, some... Uh, conservatives at the federal level, yet that moderate government managed to beat Labor. On the other hand, a conservative-looking Victorian opposition lost against the Labor Party as well. So when we read, say, for instance, Troy Bramston, Labor-aligned Australian columnist Troy Bramston, writing that Berejiklian leads a government focused on practical policy rather than wasting time prosecuting prosecuting tiresome culture wars. She's a moderate who believes delivery is more important than ideology. Aren't we agreeing with that? Isn't isn't the claim here then that she won because she wasn't ideological? Although they're not explicitly a culture war government, I think in their own way they are a quietly kind of conservative government. I mean, under Mike Baird, they'd already adopted a number of sort of moralistic positions, right? So they had already done the greyhound thing. They'd already... um, you know, shut down nightlife because it was chaotic and things like this. So it, this might not be a particularly small L liberal government. But, and but those are bad. Those are bad things. <laughs> well, they're bad. They're bad. And as, as you know, Chris, I mean, my life's work is basically reasserting that there is something different about conservatism that can't just be folded into, into a liberal narrative. Infrastructure. And, and, so, and, and so the interesting thing is this government gets called moderate because it's not necessarily always on the front foot on these culture war issues, but its governing style is certainly not 
Uh, in this country, we often associate moderate with liberal, but it's obviously not an ideologically liberal government. And I'm not sure that there's that much room the way state politics is set up these days because the states, you know, they don't control their own funding and things like that. I'm not sure that there's that much room for anything more than a contest of managerialisms at the state level. I'm not sure that there's room for an ideological battle. This was a really good conversation that we had with Dimitri Burstein and John Roskam a couple of weeks ago. Um, Evan, is state politics just hospitals, schools, roads and stadiums and a contest on that sort of just give us stuff level? Yeah, look, um, I guess so. One of the one of the terms that's being thrown around the Liberal Party quite a bit as a formula for electoral success is warm and dry. If you're warm and dry, um, that is a good pathway and a good model for Liberal government. So um, we saw that with Stephen Marshall. We've seen that with Gladys Berejiklian. Take, take take us through the warm and dry. Warm and dry in that you you moderate on your outlook, but you're dry on your economics. Or, or, and you run a good economy, you, you, Liberals need to maintain a focus on economic management uh, but uh, progressively have a moderate outlook. But with the Berejiklian government, yes, she is from the moderate faction, so people's perception of her is moderate. But it was the Berejiklian government was the first state in the country to abolish the safe schools program and replace it with their own program that's a broad-based anti-bullying program. So it's taken practical. It, it, it might not have fought those culture wars, but it's certainly out there listening to those. those, those and that's, you know, that's the lesson, right, is that if you're going to fight a culture war, you should do it in secret. I mean, that's how... <laughs> no, this, this is true. This is how, this is how the, the culture war was sort of won by the left originally. It wasn't that, like, explicit, like, we're going to take over your institutions and implement some radical cultural agenda. It was just... We took them over and now we're going to implement our ideas that happen to be a radical no, I don't. I'd have, to, I'd have to reject that take. Um, I mean, uh, Chris Chris raised, a, a, I think, a false analogy to the Victorian result. That's which, my specialty. Yeah, absolutely. That's what we're here for. Um, but the because the, the idea is that the um, the Victorian Liberal Party, this, this was very much part of the post-election spin. They ran some kind of hard right campaign because somewhere in there on about day four for about 20 minutes they mentioned safe schools but as Evan just made the point is there is a critique of safe schools you can mount there is a policy an alternative policy prescription uh, that that can uh, be put in place by a centre-right government for instance on safe schools but the Victorian Liberal Party didn't do any of that sort of work on a policy basis it was just an attempt to signal and and to the extent that it's about the culture wars it was about the style of it it's like I'm I'm going to throw a hand grenade into this campaign same same with the uh, injecting room much much later on these these were not evidence that it was some kind of hard right campaign these these, this was evidence of um, a mostly sort of moderate platform but with these occasional breakouts that just had no context made no sense um, and I think it's an excellent point you make, Evan, that on, in a field like education, you can actually make change, which reflect a set of values, and, and it's only that uh, it was not remarked upon in the campaign. Yeah, and I think um, uh, you'd be very surprised to know that the Labor Party also had the exact same policy. They also uh, signalled very early on that they didn't like the Safe Schools program and would support the government in doing what they did. Um, one of the reasons for this is New South Wales is a very different state to Victoria. Um, in a lot of Sydney metropolitan seats, the CDP, the Christian Democrat Party, their vote sits between 5 and 10%, um, especially with places like the Hills District around metropolitan Sydney. There's a big sort of uh, both multi-faith communities, both Christian and, and, and Muslim and, and, and whatnot. And so um, I think people 
look at the education system um, to represent their values and saw that it wasn't and the government just got on and did something about it. You can see that uh, what the point that you guys are making, I think, in the comparison between New South Wales and Victorian election in, uh, in the field that I work in for the IPA, which is criminal justice, you could really see in the Victorian election that the opposition had this very strident style about um, the problems with crime here in Melbourne. But when you scratch the surface a little bit over the longer period of a campaign, as Scott was saying, there was no real policy underlying it. So you can have all of the stridency, you can have all of the culture war stuff that you want, but at the end of the day, there has to be a policy platform. I think, you know, that's where... Um, some governments here or some lib- the Liberal Party has kind of got itself in trouble a little bit here in Victoria um, and the difference with the New South Wales Liberals is that at, at the end, they, the New South Wales Liberals knew what they wanted to do and that's what people care about. Whereas here in Victoria, there was this big campaign all about law and order, but what were they going to do about it short of hiring even more police after the Labor Party had already <laughs> committed to hiring lots of police? I, I think that's a really interesting um, uh, argument that we've developed here, which is basically that the, there's two ways to fight a culture war. There's sort of a there's there's an angry, shouty culture war that's a consumption product. So you consume it on television, you consume it in the newspapers, or you do it in a sort of wonky, technocratic culture war sense, which is that you're actually building into public policy some of those results, and you can succeed when you ha- when you throw wonkish expertise. At the culture wars, you can actually do well if if that's the argument that the Berejiklian government has succeeded at. It's yeah, a, one, one of the um, one of the things that really um, sort of impressed me about the the Berejiklian government was a few months ago when the train drivers went on strike and the entire of Sydney was completely shut down uh, because the train drivers went on strike over pay and conditions, and um, their minister. Uh, Andrew Constance went out and formed a narrative that it was the union's fault. It was the union's fault because they're the ones that are arguing for way more than any other worker. They're, they're arguing way and above any other public servant um, and w- was able to form the narrative and get into people's views that it was the union's fault and therefore Labor Party's fault. Um, and people actually backed them in for that um, and to probably the dismay of the um, rail union now they've just opened all these train lines with automated trains as well so I mean the, the other thing that happened which which I think uh, will we'll keep playing out for a while is uh, the, the the interpretation around the loss of seats to the shooters farmers and fishers party and uh, in western New South Wales where there's a drought um, this will be put if you listen to the ABC what you'll hear is that um, uh, it's about uh, mass fish deaths uh, and it's because all the water's going to cotton farms. This is, in fact, a, uh, very much a playing out of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, the nationalisation of water under under Howard. I don't think we've got, we got time to go through it today, but uh, there'll be a lot spun about this. But it's a, it's a classic example where the state government has been punished for a policy which is actually a national policy. Um, the, the diversion of massive amounts of water that used to go to irrigation uh, which is now going to environmental flows, finishing up in the lower reaches of the Murray, creating freshwater lakes, uh, which weren't always freshwater in South Australia. This this is a huge issue that's playing out well outside uh, those famous inner city elites, but uh, in this case it was the National Party that got punished for it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And what we're seeing again in the New South Wales election is what we're seeing around the country, which is this divide 
this this growing divide between the rural and um, uh, urban seats that um, the national party is not seem does not seem to be uh, reflecting enough. Indeed. Meanwhile, in Washington, some big news or lack of news. <laughs> A very what what is going on with the Mueller report into uh, this collusion with Russia well, that we've been hearing about for the last two years? Look, it's definitely news, Scott. <laughs> uh, what what the news means is, um, of course, naturally contested. But the Mueller report was handed down. The Mueller report into Russian collusion and various associated things was handed to the uh, Justice Department. It has now it, the Mueller report itself hasn't been released. What we've got is a letter from the attorney. General Bob Barr stating that, and I'll quote it for a second, the special counsel's investigation did not find that the Trump campaign or anyone associated with it conspired or coordinated with Russia in its efforts to influence the 2016 US presidential election. It also quotes the report directly that says, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. The um, conservatives or the Republicans are leaning on the first part of that sentence, does not conclude that the president committed a crime. The Democrats are leading on the second part of that sentence. It also does not exonerate him. That's a hell of a sentence. (laughs) It is a hell of a sentence. To be fair to the Republicans, of course, no... Um, report, no special counsel report is going to exonerate someone in the sense that it's definitely not going to clear off on it, um, clear off anything. The report, though, we don't have the report. And I think this is a really important point. The White House, as of this morning, um, doesn't have the report either. Um, uh, it seems pretty clear from this letter what the reports, uh, the headline results of the report, but I think there are lots of interesting questions and those interesting questions that are as yet unanswered are going to be played out um, through congressional hearings, through the election cycle and so forth, which is, which is to be honest, where it should be held. I think you've run two issues together there. Thank so you. Those two, those two <laughs> quotes. The first one about, uh, about Trump, there's a definitive finding of no collusion, which was the big headline charge that the hoaxers have been running with for years now. The second part about not a definitive finding about exonerating him refers to the question of whether Trump in any way obstructed the investigation, which itself yep. would be a crime. Uh, and the reason, and of course not stated here because we only have the summary, but the reason why it wouldn't reach a definitive finding about that is that The limits of the president's power in this area uh, regarding how he treats the special counsel are unclear. And it's ultimately a decision for the attorney general to make about whether there's anything there that amounts to a crime. This attorney general has said that there isn't. People are saying, well, he is an appointee of Trump, but he made the decision uh, in conjunction with his deputy, uh, Rosenstein, who has been there throughout the whole period and would in fact be the key witness, were there any obstruction charges? Because he would have been the one who was implementing the obstructive behaviour. So uh, this is as close to complete exoneration as the report could possibly be. Uh, And there is what it it has revealed, the key issue here, (laughs) is that this entire thing has been, for two years, nothing more than an attempt to destroy Trump and uh, undermine the will of the American people as expressed in the 2016 election. What happened here was that the Democrats paid for opposition research 
They gave that research to their own administration when Obama was in charge. They used that research to get Pfizer warrants to spy on their political opponents and drum up false charges in order to try and destroy their own country. That's what happened. That's the scandal. That's where this should go next. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> well, Andrew's position is very clear. Um, sorry, I just want to jump in there. But on the, on the collusion, but uh, sorry, on the obstruction of justice point, I mean, this this was one of the manifest absurdities of, of the narrative that they were building was the key uh, factoid in the story about obstructing justice was that Trump fired Comey. And the joke was if the Democrats had been re-elected, they would have fired him too because he blew up the last week of Hillary's campaign. And there is the argument that he did did so thinking that she was home and hosed and he had a chance to regain some ground when he reopened the investigation into Hillary's emails. Um, we'll never know, of course, but he might have actually blown the election for Hillary. And uh, they s- suddenly the impossible happens. Trump wins. And then it's Comey that walks in this this research, gives it this sort of veneer of respectability and, and kicks the whole thing off. And um, uh, I think we, I mean, it was Rupert Murdoch who said, you know, people think Trump listens to me, but I told him to fire Comey on day one and he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> that was the only mistake Trump made. Yeah, I think I, everyone, I, but, but, but sorry, because right. if you say that firing the FBI, head of the FBI is itself obstruction of justice... Well, then you've just made the uh, deep state sacrosanct forever. So that, that, this is a, a critical, critical finding for me. I want us to move on to some of the bigger ideas behind this, but uh, th- there is something, uh, and I think, Andrew, a lot of what you said is absolutely right, but there is strong evidence that there was genuine Russian election meddling. Um, uh, it was very unlikely to have affected the election, but it was partly intended to support Trump or yeah. at least to now, support now chaos China. or something. Now do China. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm... I, <laughs> that's right, that's right. But but this stuff happened, you know what I mean? So there, there might be multiple countries trying to interfere in, in election, but, you know, one of those countries is definitely did. And, and there was um, arguments that the Trump campaign was sympathetic to this. The indictments have shown links between the Trump orbit and uh, people in the Trump orbit and people in the orbit of the Russian government, not least Roger Stone and WikiLeaks. And, of course, Donald Trump himself said that he fired the FBI chief James Comey because of the Russia thing and he's been spending all this time trying to exonerate for some reason Putin from this documented election interference. I don't think that the special counsel was the right is the right thing. I think that this if if you have issues with the legality of the president then that's a problem for Congress or a problem for an election. But you can't deny that there's a lot of weird stuff that's been going on related to Trump and Russia. I think there's this there's this weird question that I see keep popping up and you've touched on it here which is if Trump didn't do anything wrong, why has he been so why has he attacked the special counsel so much? Why has he rejected this investigation so much? Well maybe because maybe because bear with me here, <laughs> it was a lie designed to undermine his presidency from the start. And so it was natural that he should attack it. This is uh, notwithstanding that Paul Manafort should never have been anywhere near Trump's campaign. Uh, notwithstanding that Roger Stone is a dodgy character and that these people have worked for some of the worst governments in the world. Uh, If the question is uh, foreign influence and were they to have their own equivalent of a royal commission into foreign influence, then ground zero would be the Clinton Foundation, uh, which has made hundreds of millions of dollars in donations from countries like Russia, in fact, 
while Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, she did a deal so that Russian companies could buy most of America's uranium reserves, uh, just coincidentally after getting a whole lot of money from Russia. So if you want to talk about this, then let's do it properly. But the idea that there's something in particular about Trump uh, and in particular about Russian meddling, which is just mostly for the yucks, uh, <laughs> I think it's just, it's just absurd. And, you know, if you were really going to do it, you would look at other countries like China um, that obviously have a lot of money that flow into not just, you know, to bring this back to Australia, not just to into in United States politics, but here as well. So, Evan, what, what does this mean for the Democrats? Because I'm thinking from a Democratic uh, from a Democrat position, you're, you, you've got a bunch of ways that you can defeat Trump. Um, uh, you could, you were hoping that, that the Mueller investigation would lead to a prosecution or, or something. You could just impeach him because impeachment is, of course, a political process, so it doesn't require um, evidence of collusion. It doesn't require evidence of criminality. Or you could just focus on on the election as well. So where do we see the Democrats going from here in your view? Yeah, uh, look, in terms of uh, the, the Mueller investigation, this, this was just a, a catch cry of uh, the Democratic Party to, to try to delegitimise de the election result. Um, and a lot of the Democrats in the last couple of days are saying, well, this, this means that we need further investigations. Maybe the, the House Investigation Committee, that's where it needs to be. The House Judicial Committee, that's where we're, 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 that, that'll be trusted to investigate where Barr and, and, and Mueller couldn't. The, the Mueller investigation um, took out 2,300 subpoenas, um, made 500 interviews across across 28 countries. That seems like a pretty thorough <laughs> investigation. So what the Democratic Cost Party... something like $30 million. It, it, exactly. US, what, real dollars. What, <laughs> what, what, what the Democratic Party need to do is concede the election result because they've, they've never done. Uh, they've all blamed it on Russia or, or most mostly have and start looking to 2020 as... A, a new policy platform rather than we had the election stolen from us. Exactly, and Trump is vulnerable. I mean, this is the, the absurdity of this, is that Trump... The, the hoax has worked at least in one sense, which is that Trump will never be Trump, right? He'll never be... We'll never get the presidency that he campaigned on. So they've done that. And Trump is a vulnerable incumbent. He hasn't delivered... He ran on perhaps the most concrete policy platform of any presidential candidate ever. So concrete, in fact, that it included Literally a giant concrete. wall, <laughs> uh, of which not a single brick has been laid. So Trump is vulnerable. Uh, he hasn't delivered his infrastructure plan, things like this that were key promises in these battleground states. So why not start talking about that? Why not just say, look, it's actually, and it's, as a bonus, they get to put the Clintons in the rearview mirror. They can say, well, Hillary had her chance and she lost. Now we're going forward. Now we're going to attack this man on policy grounds because there is an argument that Trump's presidency has been a failure. But they can't. The trouble for the Democrats with uh, pivoting to policy is they've got this uh, wide open field of candidates. And uh, they've, they've got some, uh, some, some. Bernie Sanders is now not the most left wing candidate that they have. So for them to actually make make a decision between whether they go down the the route of, of full on socialism, uh, or whether they stick to some kind of uh, Clintonian centrism, uh, is 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 a question that they probably don't want to answer at the moment. It's much easier to coalesce around Trump and and really the impeachment game for them is to keep talking about impeachment without doing it. They, they can, uh, as Evan said, have these investigations going all the 
before, after the election. They don't want to initiate uh, impeachment because that gets them into a messy process and they'd actually have to prove something. But having all these inquiries is, is wonderful for them. They can just keep digging it up for as long as possible. And and in their defence, inquiries are one of the things that Congress does and Congress constitutionally has that responsibility. It's allowed to. It's, it, it's good. Now, there's no doubt that when the Republicans have been out of power, they've also used the inquiry process to, to try to drag up scandals and so forth. And and I think that's a legitimate thing. But the, the choice, the, the, you raise the interesting point about the um, uh, Democratic primary because the choice that the Democrats face right now is do you focus on the congressional inquiries that lead you towards impeachment or do you just focus on, as, as Andrew's pointing out, do you focus on building a policy platform and building a critique of the Trump administration that is, you know, just just based on its policy and, and vibe in the world and all that sort of thing. And the problem that the Democrats have right now is that in an almost Trumpish way, the way that you will make a name for yourself as a Democratic primary contender is by talking about impeachment because that's what the base of the resistance actually want to hear they want to hear the person who says the loudest thing about Trump's illegitimacy not just Trump's um, uh, poor status as a president it I think that would Trump change. derangement syndrome so yeah, yeah. I, well, I would say I would say um, that that is actually that would just reinforce the problem right that that would focusing on impeachment will force people back into Trump's corner I mean the the whole populist thing on left and right I think boils down to this idea that elections should change the government and in in the united states for a long time it's felt like even if it's not actually true that uh when you have a presidential election it's not actually changing the government and that the same policies keep recurring and that's why when trump came out as he you know attacked the stupid wars overseas was actually a really interesting sort of landmark bridging moment where it was like that is a signal issue of this policy that just stays the same no matter who you vote for and so Forcing people back, basically making that attack that um, you know Trump was Ill- illegitimate the whole time, and that we're going to keep push push on with uh, impeachment, is basically going to push people back into their corner because they can say, no, we voted for him for a reason, right? Even if he hasn't delivered on that reason, we're still going to back him in against this more of this establishment attacks on him and attempt to reinforce the status quo that we think isn't working. So I think that would be a mistake. I think they're better off really pitching very hard to those swing voters that Trump was able to get on board. Can we can we talk about Trump for a minute though? Because <laughs> this because we well, haven't been until now. But 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 what I'm hearing there, Andrew, and this this is what we did promise listeners we were going to come to is is you you're a, you're part of this essentially writing Trump off. You're, you're saying Trump's not Trump anymore. Trump didn't do Trump. Um, the alternative narrative is, you know, he said he was going to focus on manufacturing and jobs and he was going to start a trade war with China, which he has. Um, it'd be pretty hard for the Democrats to say, oh, but you didn't build your wall when they're the ones who stopped him. Um, so economic growth has been pretty good. Some of the jobs have come back to the heartland. Um, he'll keep the trade war bubbling along. I would have thought he probably won't ramp it up, but he won't conclude a deal with Xi Jinping either because that would be the end of Trumpism. Um, what, what, so is, is, has Trump really stopped being Trump and, and have the Republicans captured him or is it the other way around? Because if you listen to, um, say, the Never Trumpers on the, on the Republican side, the, you know, the, the David Brooks and so on, they'd say that Trump captured the Republican Party. So which way around is it? 
I think it's, <laughs> I hate to sit on the fence, but it's a little bit of both. But I think that... Um, <laughs> make a not, stand, it's not allowed, stand. But I, I think <laughs> I, I have a different prediction to you, which is that I think that he will eventually um, sign a trade deal with China and signal the end of this trade war. Um, and not because trade, like, and I think that'd be bad, not just because, uh, well, not because I happen to think that trade wars are particularly good, but because I think the point that he was making in attacking China was a good one, which is that um, that in this in a world of free trade, China hasn't exactly played by the rules, and so it was time for them to get a little bit of a kick, right? Because there's no real international body that could deliver that; only the United States could deliver that. Um, and also, it's a good thing to deliver a message to people in the United States that hey, we haven't forgotten about you, as uh, some of the losers in this uh, ongoing globalization of trade. So I think, but I do think that he will sort of wuss out on that, and I, um, because because his track record isn't all that good in sticking to his promises. Um, so the question is, I, I do think um, you know that Trump is sort of pivoting more to an establishment line. Part of this is because he's ramping up his re-election campaign, and he needs the money to flow in. So he needs to do things that the Republican Party uh, institutionally would like him to do. Uh, and so, you know, I, I do think that Trump has kind of moderated a little bit or moderated in the sense of going back towards an establishment Republican line. At the same time, I think Trump has managed to change what the establishment party establishment line is a little bit on some things like aggression towards China on trade. It strikes me that there, there may not be a Trumpism that's possible in that sense, because some of, in fact, Andrew, you and I were talking about this before the podcast, some of the things that Trump has done that, in our view, or in the conservative libertarian side of politics, think are the his best things. He uh, are only possible in because of the establishment, and the most obvious one is the judges. So, br- getting those um, excellent judges onto um, not just the Supreme Court but down down the line as well. He has relied very heavily on Republican. Washington, D.C. establishment, like the Federalist Society, who have provided him with those names and provided those names with the intellectual frameworks developed from way back into the 19, into the 1970s. Um, Trumpism's greatest successes may, be, um, may rely very strongly on establishment Republican infrastructure. I think that's I think that's right. In particular, when it comes to like you say the judges, but there is a downside to that. In his reliance on those uh, names, those recommendations, those institutions, he probably ended up with a judge that was more a Republican than a conservative, uh, necessarily in the sense of you mean Kavanaugh. I mean Bre- I mean Brett Kavanaugh. The second Bre- second one, not Bre- so much uh, the first. Yeah, part, so Gorsuch, Gorsuch Gorsuch was sort of uni- universally loved, um, but. Kavanaugh was much more of a Republican pick. He had been uh, a Republican lawyer. So, I mean, the opposition that you saw uh, from Democrats to Kavanaugh was at least in part because he had been a party hack before he was a judge. <laughs> like he, he was involved in the Whitewater investigations of the Clintons. So this is, a, this is a real Republican operative. And Trump kind of did a deal, I think, with Mitch McConnell, which was like, you know, we'll get your boy up, and then if we get another pick, then it'll be a MAGA judge. But it really should have been the other way around. And that this is an example, I think, of where disillusionment with Trump sort of comes in, is that you can make a narrative, I think, that Mitch McConnell has kind of run circles around him about what things get prioritised. So Trump ran on an infrastructure bill and middle-class tax cut, 
they delivered a tax cut first um, that was more the sort of thing that you would have expected any Republican president to deliver more than this sort of Trumpist middle class, lower middle class insurgency type package. And I think those are the key parts. It's this, the Republican institutions are vital to Trump because he doesn't have his own institutions and he's not a movement builder. I think that's obvious. <laughs> so, yeah, but this this, this is, a, and again, you made this point earlier, The the there has been this narrative which has suited both sides to say that Trump is this incredibly, dis- not only a disruptive candidate, but a disruptive president, that Trumpism is something that's outside the pale, outside of the Overton window. This has suited both Trump supporters and the left. And this this whole narrative that he's going to, going to or is in the process of destroying all of the bedrock constitutional foundations of America that he's ripping society apart it's this is the very much a left-wing narrative which is but it sort of suited Trump as well because he, he wants to be that guy he wants to be that outsider but with the reflection of time and the realities of power and particularly in a constitutional society like America it's inevitable that you're going to see something where it's like well perhaps he's not so far outside the Republican tradition and, and, and goes back to some older Republican traditions pre pre the Bush years. I think that's right about the Republican institutions um, you know, backing backing in Trump or, or forming the new Trumpism uh, and you know so the old conservatism having uh, having or the Bush era conservative conservatism really having dying. Um, in in terms of uh, uh, Trump and 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 his support base. Um, I've got to remember, a lot of his support base wasn't particularly Republican support base. There were several trade unions al- along the Rust Belt states that were supporting him because of his his um, policies on trade, for example, which they'd you know tried and tried to to get through Democratic Party processes, but failed. And then all of a sudden, there was this candidate that was saying all the things that they were talking about on trade. Yeah, I think Trump is a throwback. I think that's what. Is it's and I th- Trump has connected the Republican Party, particularly on foreign policy, to an older tradition. Um, he, he's not that much of an outlier if you look at the broad sweep of Republican like politics. Robert, so, Robert Taft, he got beaten by Eisenhower yeah, for or, the nomination. Yeah, yeah or even exactly yeah. going back to Eisenhower. So he's not that. It's it's not that different, really. But I don't, I don't think. Sorry to pick that up. I think that's a really good point. But it's not all the way back to Taft. It's all the way back to the nineteen nineties. The, the dominance of um, foreign policy interventionism within the Republican Party as a sort of lodestar is only really a post-September 11 thing. So if, if Trump represents rolling the Republican back a decade and a half, then, you know, you could say he's well within the mainstream. Yeah, George, Certainly. No, that's, 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 that's what we're saying. That George what Bush we're saying. himself yeah. campaigned the first time on a humble foreign policy, mm. and then, then 9-11 happened. Um, but... So it's, it's exactly. I think Trump's signal, signal signal issues are not that far removed from the broad sweep of Republicanism. And it's to, speaking of who narratives suit, it has suited some parts of the conservative movement in the United States to pretend that Trump is so far outside what they uh, would ordinarily support, because. Um, there's always been this confusion, I think, between the institutional conservative movement in the United States and what conservative voters in the United States always want. And this is what has really shocked people, I think, like uh, like Bill Kristol, uh, be one of the famous ones who was obviously, he was the editor, founder of um, the Weekly Standard before it went bust, uh, largely because of his own actions. Um, <laughs> people like that were shocked that the conservative movement as an intellectual thing 
had never really captured the grassroots of the Republican Party in the way they thought they had. But of course, that's obvious because the intellectual part of a political party never really captures the grassroots because most voters don't vote on, um, you know, they don't read thick ideological books. <laughs> but what they, the role that ideology plays, and I think um, when we uh, get to the, the next part uh, of this discussion about um, what happens to Trumpism after Trump, um, the role that ideology plays, in my view, in politics is that people want to believe that the actions of government refer to some sort of systematic reasoning. Uh, even if they themselves can't articulate it, we, give, we put so much faith in the administrative state to make so many decisions in our lives. It would be nice if these things could be justified by some system of ideas. Um, and basically, the Republicans had a system of ideas. It was this uh, fusionism, this libertarian conservatism. Um, and what it turned out was that as a narrative for explaining their own actions, that failed because they never actually reduced the size of government. And people sort of saw, saw through the scam. And it took a scammer to see through the scam. It took Trump <laughs> to come along and say, hey, wait, you've, you've all been lied to, so let's just be honest. Just be I've honest. done exactly this in the past. Yeah. <laughs> let's, so let's be honest about, let's, let's at least be honest about the lies uh, and tell a different story. And I think that's the role that ideology plays. I think that's what, tr what makes Trump an interesting and perhaps, dare I say, a historical figure is that the ideology that's used to explain the actions of the Republican Party may be shifting. So having having done that to fusionism, can it ever make a comeback? I mean, we, so if institu what you're saying, if I hear you right, is institutional republicanism, the institutional Republican Party might be resurgent and uh, and making a, an alliance with Trump essentially. But can fusionism itself come back as the as the governing ideology of of uh, and and of course the, the third element, libertarian conservative, and and in America at least uh, the religious right. Uh, with the historic sort of uh, three uh, elements of that. Is that, is that, did Trump kill it forever? I don't think so, because I think conservatism is, um, uh, this is kind of what I mean, what I write about when I'm not the IPA. Conservatism isn't really about who you are or what you think so much as what you do. Um, and so small government conservatism can come back if there's ever a conservative party that actually reduces the size of government. Now, the long sweep of 200 years of modernity suggests that perhaps this is like waiting for Godot, that this party that <laughs> reduces the size of government uh, may never appear. But this, someone like Trump, who having uh, campaigned mostly, in an, uh, mostly about changing the story that is told, uh, could um, you know, implement such a, such, a, such a thing, and then that would be what people would come to expect from conservatism. So there's a really interesting piece um, published in on the website of First Things, which is a um, conservative magazine in the US, um, uh, called Against the Dead Consensus. This is a sort of manifesto by a um, group of conservative thinkers, such as Patrick Deneen, Rod Dreyer, and, and some others like that. And, and they're basically arguing precisely this, that that consensus cannot be recovered. And I'll, I'll quote them. There is no returning to the pre-Trump conservative consensus that collapsed in 2016. Any attempt to do so would 
um, be misguided and harmful to the right. And so they go through a couple of the elements of that consensus and their critiques of it. One of the more interesting ones is, um, and, and, and the, piece, the piece is not very evidence-focused, but it's a really interesting statement of principles. So, for instance, they argue that the fetishization of autonomy yielded the very tyranny that consensus conservatives claim most to detest. They are, or their argument is that um, the consensus conservatism of the pre-Trump era um, did not focus enough on um, basic conservative values like the importance of family, the importance of community, that sort of Edmund Burke-style um, conservative consensus. Now, I think this is a really interesting essay and it's a, um, a really compelling statement of a case I fundamentally disagree with. Um, it's, a, it's great to read a clear argument that you hate um, uh, <laughs> because this, to my mind, is very little, or, or this argument, as I should say, and, and it's not unique to this piece, this argument is very much a sort of conservative virtue signaling in, in a funny sense. It's, we keep hearing about, oh, how bad is you know, the fetishization of autonomy? We are abandoning families, we're abandoning communities. But when we, talk, when we get to the stage of talking about specific public policies, there's very little there. It is still the case. It is still the case that free market liberalism, the free market liberalism that we have championed for um, decades and the IPA has championed since 1943, is better for human prosperity, is better for health, welfare, um, even the family. It is still better to have open free markets and liberal institutions. So I read these fascinating and really compelling and um, eloquent uh, statements against this consensus, but I'm not sure what we're supposed to be replacing it with. I'm not sure that's about replacing it. So there's there's a reason here. Oh, there's a, a thing here that often gets done in liberalism, which is to conflate institutions that are established and which might be ostensibly described as liberal with liberal theory. And so, what is actually going on in this, in my view? is a return of some kind of anti-rationalist sentiment where it's we might like, say, freedom of speech or we might like free markets or we might like any other kind of liberal institution, but to abstract from that uh, a recipe for policy going forward that could always be applied to any given institution in society. Which And this is why someone like John Locke is a real figure of hate for these people because in Locke's work, he does that historical analysis and then he does like a really abstract version of what he takes that English history to mean going forward. Uh, and so what the, the case being made here is that it may be that universities, say, should be very liberal about speech and about association and things like that. But the logic that determines how a university achieves its purpose doesn't necessarily apply to any other organisation institution in society such that for example you might want freedom of speech and things like that on a university campus but not care so much about exclusive men's or women's clubs whereas liberal logic the recipe of liberalism as theory abstracted from historical experience suggests that all institutions must be brought into alignment with these foundational principles like autonomy and that's what they mean by fetishization and that is what they're defending in a policy sense, is, in fact, inconsistency between institutions based on an assessment of those institutions' unique purposes. But I, d I just cannot get over... 
this this and look, look that's a that's a really interesting point but i cannot get over this problem that it regardless of whether we think the electorate is moving away from a classical liberalism a classical liberal policy framework or not whether we think that um, people are starting to react to um, excessive neoliberalism it is still the case that free trade lower taxes deregulation and peace and non-intervention is the best way to achieve the goals that we all agree we want which is um, uh, human prosperity um, strong families and communities uh, opportunity, economic mobility, and all those sorts. Yeah, of what, is, what has liberalism ever done for us? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Port, and, port it, and, it, and it is absolutely <laughs> right that we have had um, decades and decades, a century of failure to resist the growth of the state. But this alternative model seems to offer nothing um, uh, to do that either. It's just a, a bunch of complaints that we're not spending enough time talking about um, Appalachia. But it is the rationalisation that creates the need for the big state. I mean, that's at least Patrick Deneen's case and that's Rod Dreyer's case uh, when he's talking about the Benedict Option as well. It's that... Take it, us through the Benedict Option. Uh, so the, the Benedict Option is basically Rod Dreyer's argument that um, as Christianity recedes as the dominant framework through which Americans in particular and, and the West generally sees the world, believing Christians need to not retreat from public space. He's often mistaken for saying that. What he's saying is that they need to form their own intentional communities where they live, um, you know, where they, they, they create bonds between themselves to sustain these traditions. And the argument is that a government that is possessed of a particular ideology, be it uh, liberal or otherwise, in its attempts to rationalise all of the institutions of, the, of society will necessarily be a big government. It will grow uh, in tandem with the erasure of the civil society intermediate organisations. And so what they're saying is that I think the part of what you have described that they would really disagree with is the idea that um, liberalism as a theory is coherent with the maintenance of these kinds of institutions from basic ones like the family uh, and the church through to uh, other kinds of organisations that people have uh, created for particular uh, purposes. Uh, because these institutions in society are always subordinate to the logic of liberalism, and the logic of liberalism takes as its foundational uh, point that the, the moral unit of society is the autonomous individual, any institution that does not have the same premise mm -hmm. is liable to radical change if that logic is imposed upon it. But I, I Sorry. Oh, I, fa I found this a very old-school uh, Catholic conservative-type piece, and it's not surprising considering you know, the people who signed it were the most prominent Catholic conservative speakers because it goes to um, uh, valuing communitarianism, I think, more than individualism. Um, and... It's very like old school class warfare, job creators versus the workers, and there's not one side, like there's not a halfway bridge between. And as classical liberals will see uh, uh, that we can have both and we can work a bridge between, um, whereas here there seems to be one side or the other. We've got to value job creators or we've got to value the workers and there's no middle, middle ground there. And I think a lot of the, the Catholics in particular... Um, 
reject the hyper individualism or individualism because they see themselves as not there, not on on earth really for themselves. They see on earth uh, themselves on earth for others and and you know looking out for that, their their neighbours. So inherently in Catholic ideology and and in conservative Catholic ideology, there's this rejection of the individual and, and moving towards sort of communitarian. But isn't that but that that's good. Uh, so and and but that's really important at the level of personal ethics. So um, uh, I don't think there is this individualization because even you know I, I, I'm I'm a, a partisan of individualism, but you know I care deeply about my family and my community and, and my colleagues. Everyone I care deeply about you, um, and I care deeply. And you situate yourself in that space, and it's really important for us to all have this um, higher order ethical framework. Um, whether it's driven from from religious belief, whether it's just driven from a, a love of community and so forth. But when we start talking about the public policy, which presumably is the importance of talking about a post-Trump conservatism or and, and the rejection of the pre-Trump conservative consensus, when we talk about the public policy, I just cannot get away from the fact that you're going to have stronger families if – the um, uh, the people in those families can find employment and they are going to find employment and they are going to find prosperity in an open market economy. I cannot get away from that. I have one concrete example. Oh. Just, which I know, <laughs> like, this is... Don't this bring is an take, example to a podcast, this Andrew. Is, this, is take, this is, so this is, I think, because well, I, agree, I agree with you, Chris, about how sometimes people making this critique can be very coy about what it is that they mean in a practical sense. And so one example would be Sunday trading, right? So instead of having uh, a 24-7 open labour market that we try and uh, ameliorate with policies like the minimum wage and things like that, we could substitute that entire framework for simply a day off. Um, and I think that is something like... So the, the Polish Conservative government um, that... Um, Catholic conservatives as Evan... I have a very glib formulation about this that my supervisor at university doesn't like, which is that <laughs> if, if liberalism is secularised Protestantism, then conservatism is secularised Catholicism. Um, I'm but, not sure I like it much. <laughs> <laughs> but the, um, <laughs> what are conservative Protestants supposed to do? They're all high, <laughs> high church Anglicans. Aren't they? Anyway, but Let's the, go find one. We'll get them on the next podcast. The, um, but <laughs> that aside... Leaving that aside, I think so. This uh, is a kind of a Catholic-influenced uh, conservative government that uh, people like Patrick Deneen have been sort of supportive of, and one of the things that they have done is reintroduced laws against Sunday trading for certain sectors of the economy. And this is the kind of trade-off um, where they say, well, yes, obviously we have reduced economic activity, but we do get um, a space in which families can spend the day together, attend church, that, all these things. That is a great argument, but a deeply counterproductive one, because I think the absence of Sunday trading is really anti-family. And I speak on behalf of someone who has a family, and during the week, it is very, very hard to do chores because you're picking the kids up, dropping the kids off from sco to school, picking the kids up from school, making the dinner, looking after the children. My children are too young to leave by themselves, so I can't can't pop up to the shops to, to do chores or something like that. If I'm told that the only day I can do chores on is one of those weekends, that is taking away a massive amount of flexibility I have to look after my own family, to look after and to actually spend time with the family in a way I see fit. So I, I, I understand that 
Some people want to or have to work on Sundays and maybe they prefer not to or maybe it would be nice if no one had anything to do on Sundays. But if you have a family, then you need Sunday. <laughs> Sunday is a really useful day. Oh, and, and you can actually give the kids some cash and send them up to the supermarket on a Sunday well, to get, the, get whatever you've just run out I of. cannot wait, Scott. I cannot <laughs> wait. We have come to that part of the podcast where we talk about what we've been reading, watching or listening to. Um, Chris Berg. So I've been listening to another podcast, which I do recommend that um, uh, listeners... It's called Anatomy of Next. It's by um, uh, a a guy called Michael Solana. He's from a venture capital fund called Founders Fund. Anatomy of Next... uh, I'm listening to season two of this podcast. Anatomy of Next takes as its central conceit we need to go to Mars. It's really important from a human perspective that we move to Mars and then once we're on Mars and once we've built cities on Mars, then we go to the next planet and everything like that. And in each episode, he goes through through a series of interviews the practicalities of doing so. What's interesting about this is not because I think it's really important that we as a human species travel from Mars and I've always um, been uncomfortable with that sort of, you know, human destiny type, type talk in the space program but it's really fascinating because it it's about the boundaries of technological change at the moment so he's got episodes on materials science and the amazing thing things that they can do with extremely nano engineered steel and materials and how we can um, do geoengineering and bioengineering um, the enormous advances in fuel and so forth and it's important for us i think as um policy wonks as people are interested in public policy to have some idea of the massive changes at the really base like infrastructure materials level that are going to come through over the next couple of decades and listening to this i've been thinking back well you know if 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 you lived in 1900 and you forecasted what the world looked like in 2000 that such enormous radical changes um, that happened in the space of decades. We're going to face those in our lifetimes on margins that we don't expect. And we should be ready and thinking about those ahead of time. So it's a fantastic podcast. It's great fun, if nothing else. Um, it would be cool to to build a city on Mars. But it's interesting just because it's technological change in the future. And technology is one of those things. We we know about it. We know that it it, it, it can come it can come very fast, but uh, but it it always surprises us. Yeah, that's it's only in retrospect that we see what tremendous impact these kind of changes can have in our lives. Well, that's right. But the, but that's one of the things that we've been trying to talk about at the RMIT Blockchain Hub, where I work, um, is... Obligatory um, plug. Obligatory plug. This is the Blockchain Minute, as we say. Um, this is one of the <laughs> things that we've been trying to talk about in the context of liberalism and conservatism. Um, it's no point having a post-Trump conservatism or post-Trump liberalism, if it's not addressed to the major challenges of the time, and the major challenges of the time are not solely a populist surge and immigration and sovereignty, it's the massive technological changes that have really reshaped the economy in the last couple of decades. I think one of the um, stories that people are underselling about the um, populist wave is the role that technological change, not Chinese competition, had on um, changes in the industrial sector of the economy, and that's what pol- that's what political theory really is is for. 
is that just as a pitch for it, political theory? <laughs> yeah, it, no, because I, I mentioned earlier that like part of what I see in, in this debate that we've been having is like rationalists versus anti-rationalists. But there's this argument um, that that I would I would make that rationalism is in a sense adaptive to modernity, um, not just because of the nature of the state and the things that it can do, but also because we're going through such a rapid uh, period of material change that it's more important than ever that we have some idea about how we should respond to that. Um, so that's why these debates about you know conservatism as a discrete ideology versus libertarianism and classic liberalism, these things are actually really worth having because we want to try and get to uh, a system of ideas that allows us to cope with these changes that are taking place. Sounds like the mission statement for this podcast. The, the winner of that debate, it, and my claim is, and whether it's classical liberalism or conservatism or whatever, the winner is going to be the ones, the, the philosophy that can address the next challenges. Not the challenge, not, not frustration with the George W. Bush administration, but the next challenges, the technological change, the, the questions about automation and AI and blockchain and geoengineering and nanotechnology. That's where these debates should go. Well, that's why you bet on the one with thousands of years of history. Anyway, <laughs> I might go next because um, there is some tenuous relationship to what we've just been talking about. I've, I've been reading uh, the final of in the series of six books by Carlo Knausgaard, the Norwegian author, his autobiographical series, uh, which has been go- going on for about a decade now uh, as it's slowly translated into English. Uh, Pete Knausgaard was probably about two years ago, but... Um, I'm just getting around to the final book in the series now, and it, and it is quite remarkable uh, effort. This this bloke pulls apart his his own life in a series of six novels, minutely, intensely self-critical. Uh, he can talk. He can write a hundred pages on taking the kids down to the shops to get a packet of cigarettes, <laughs> and the argument. Well, it can be ha- quite stressful. <laughs> indeed, indeed, for those with young children out there um, who've had to wrangle them into prams and things. It's it, the sec. I recommend the second book. It's actually quite, quite remarkable. But um, this one is weird because his his final book is actually then about writing the first book. So it's, and in the middle of it, there's this incredible digression into because he, he called the entire series uh, my struggle which in in german has the unfortunate translation of mein kampf and that that was sort of one of the things that was always thrown at him that you know is this some kind of aryan you know bs from this norwegian guy so instead of ignoring that he he, he spends a third of this book talking about hitler's mein kampf and it's it's a lit and approaches it as a as a literary work um and so i've really grappled with this and for anyone who's interested in kanowska do to persevere um what i think he's actually done he's an artist looking at this very very strange 17 18 year old adolf hitler who thought he was an artist but actually was just rubbish so and the philosophical part of it and, and he takes issue with people like um, uh, Hitler biographer um, Alistair Kershaw, who basically said, you know, just this is unspeakable evil human being, which he was. But um, in many ways, Knausgaard's saying, well, yeah, but there was some things about German romanticism, German idealism, that sort of Wagnerian thing that weren't just cliches. This young idiot in Austria had actually absorbed a lot of those ideas 
but he had no talent. He had no, He kept being rejected from the academy in Austria where he wanted to be a, a painter. And, and typical Knausgaard, he's like, is that like me? Am I just this idiot who's actually no good as an artist? You know, is there a little bit of Hitler in me? Like, he's so self-critical. Um, and this is why we need to subsidise the arts? Or <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Knausgaard's done all this on his own. Um but anyway, that, that one day I will circle back on the podcast and talk about the early books, which are, of course, much more straightforward, autobiographical and an incredible literary enterprise. Um, but so you've read them all? Um, I'm, all read, I'm stuck on this, this Hitler part, but I've virtu- <laughs> virtually read them all now, yes. Because it seems like an extraordinary work of just deep narcissism. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and then... He'll, he'll be narcissistic in his self-examination and then write 100 pages about how terribly narcissistic he is and how he was awful to his first wife. He, you know, he mm. feels guilty about not being there for his children. Um, and But it was only... Uh, art was all he had to lead him out of it. Mm. Um, as he, he was, you know, ridiculous binge drinker, um, horrible to his friend, cadged money from everyone, smoked too much, uh, drank too much... And this this got him out of it, um, and in fact has given him worldwide notoriety. So, and now gives him the the license to do uh, all, all sorts of crazy things like this. But um, so I, it's not quite Proust, which is was, was his model, um, but it is a remarkable effort nonetheless. I think uh, my one probably fits in neatly <laughs> here because we're talking about artistic temperament, but no artistic talent. I watched. Uh, the Motley Crew biopic <laughs> on Netflix, um, and that just came out. Yeah, yeah, just had my uh, internet installed. Who, who's in Motley Crew? Motley Crew were a pretty big sort of glam metal band. I, I think you'd call them glam metal. They used to dress up in wigs and stuff um, from the eighties. Um, biggest hits probably Doctor Feelgood, um, Kickstart My Heart, which is like a favourite of sports montages to this day. Uh, <laughs> Not a good movie, um, and I think what what sort of brought to mind for me was, um, you know, Andy Warhol, that fam- famous quote, you know, in the future everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. I think if you're updating it now, it'd be like, in the future everyone will have a biopic made about them. Um, for Netflix. For Netflix. For so, Netflix. like, this comes on the back of, they, they made a biopic about the guy who founded National Lampoon, as if that could possibly be interesting <laughs> to anyone. I quite enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this like one, yeah. Oh, well, this one features, the, well, you'll love this one, it features the same kind of lazy narr- narration, uh, director camera talking to uh, point out self-consciously the bits of the story that they've changed. Um, pretty boring, though, because I think because... Um, <laughs> sort of sex, drugs and rock and roll, um, which basically like Netflix exists. I have this love-hate relationship with Netflix because it's so convenient, but it also exists to promote degeneracy. Um, (laughs) And I think, you know, this movie is a good example of that aspect of Netflix and the aspect of Netflix that says any movie can only have like five sets um, because we don't have enough money. Um, There's no one in this movie that you would recognise apart from the least charismatic, least popular guy from Game of Thrones, the guy who spent two seasons torturing everyone else. Um, so there's not a lot to recommend this movie, but the reason that I wanted I'm to... I'm glad we've brought it up then. No, 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 the reason <laughs> I wanted to... The, the reason that I did bring it up um, was just to, to note this thing about um, why it is that Netflix makes movies like this. And this is a movie, I think, that was sort of stuck in turnaround 
for about 10 years. So turnaround is where you have a script, it gets bought by a studio. I think this one actually got dropped by its original studio. Netflix is kind of trawling through movies that are ready to go because the market that it is competing in is changing. It's losing a lot of its content to new streaming platforms. And so you're going to see more and more of these movies that were sort of good to go 10 years ago, might have been more interesting 10 years ago, um, but uh, you know that Netflix can just roll out really quickly. Um, this one was a classic sort of made-for-TV movie, you know, biopic where it's like every incident you've ever heard of. If you know anything about Motley Crue, you'll, you'll recognise some of it. Um, but, yeah, generally like just a, like a perfect platonic Netflix movie. Historically, I mean, the studios have been able to rely on sort of event films, so it would be a major thing if they released a new Star Wars, um, uh, as they did in the early 2000s. It would be a major thing if we got a new Indiana Jones or, or, or whatever, and now we've got event films in the um, in the superhero Marvel space particularly. But um, Netflix wants to, and, and the streaming platforms more generally, they want to um, crack out genuine movies. They, they don't just want to do TV series as like the um, television networks did, but they can't rely on an event because there's just so much content. There's already event films on in the... In, um, in the cinemas, but we can't. But but they have to make new stuff constantly. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to compete in that market. So we're getting a massive amount of sort of medium quality and low quality stuff. Even their tentpole ones, attempted tentpole ones, like at streaming at the same time as a movie called Triple Frontier. I won't go into it now, but it's about these guys who try and rob a drug dealer in uh, the border area of Colombia. Um, but it has like it has Ben Affleck in it, Oscar Isaac, um, much. Uh, good, good director J.C. Chandor, who made the excellent All Is Lost um, with Robert Redford a few years ago that everyone should watch. Um, but even those ones, again, that was a script that was going to be was going to be produced elsewhere. They've sort of bought it off the bottom shelf, and it doesn't work, and it doesn't work for the same reasons um, that this Motley Crue biopic doesn't yeah. work. Yeah. So Evan, when when you run out of ideas to make movies about, you can always go back to musicals and take the music out. Is that right? That's right. Well, um, you know, the music the music was added long after the book, um, as you'd know. And um, what BBC has done, what my pick is, is um, this BBC miniseries retake of, of Les Mis. And now, w- often when people think of Les Mis, they think of the musical, which is literally all you, music. You mean it wasn't always a musical? No, no, <laughs> it wasn't. It was a Victor Hugo book. It was a very, very thick book. Um, it's a long read. I highly recommend any, anyone to read it. But what BBC have done with some of the best uh, actors in the UK, Dominic West, David Iloa, uh, Lily Collins as Fontaine, um, is put together a sort of multi-million dollar miniseries of the original book of Les Mis. And I think it's really interesting. I love the story of Les Mis. It's literally my favourite musical, but the story um, is quite good as well. Um, it's the ultimate story of redemption. Uh, it's actually one of the only uh, books and, and, and movies, I think, that paint the church in a really positive light uh, and some of the themes of that coming through. Um, but what you see in the movie is all the things that you don't see in the musical and, and how people get there. Like in the musical, for example, um, uh, it, sorry, in the in the BBC series, Javert is much more suspicious of Jean Valjean from the start. He recognises him straight away and, and, and makes that clear and goes and reports him and um, and for example, as well, when Jean Valjean goes to the court, he um, 
in the musical, he just escapes, says he's Jean Valjean, and then escapes and runs away. Um, but in the book, um, and as you'll see in the miniseries, he actually um, uh, hands himself in, goes to jail for two years before he escapes from, then escapes from jail and goes to his path of redemption to find Cosette. And, it's, and it's really interesting how Les Mis has um, been reinterpreted over time and I think significantly for the worse. And I'm glad to hear that the BBC miniseries actually fixes a bit of this because, um, you know, so it's about a, um, a genuine political contest. It's about the 1832 uprising in Paris. Um, and what Victor, I, I wrote about this when the, um, the Hollywood musical came out a couple of years ago, 2013, I think it was. Um, and, and the argument I made there is that, that Hugo had taken a lot of the politics out of that uprising in order to tell a religious story, which was um, about redemption and so forth, which is why they spend so much time in the um, first section of the book um, mm. t- talking about the priest. Um, but then the musical adaptation um, actually strips away all the religion as well. So we're sort of left without any strong themes apart just, uh, apart from just like you should you should pointlessly die on behalf of the poor. Let's just fight back for some reason for on some claim um, against uh, the generic rulers. Um, and and of course the the movie musical, the 2013 version did that even worse, just stripping out as much as it possibly could from any of the themes and so forth. And it's so, so that's that's a really interesting that they're trying to the BBC one is trying to bring it back in, is it? Absolutely. I highly recommend um, go out and watch it. Uh, I watch it on Foxtel now, which is sort of Foxtel's streaming service. But things like um, the background of Marius about how his father was a trader and he was raised by his grandfather is all featured in the series and really, really interesting um, and something you really don't get from the musical uh, in, 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 in any way. Looking forward to that one. And um, also a final, final note on uh, Les Mis. I believe that rebellion in 1832, the student organisation was actually friends of the ABC. It's <laughs> a, a true story. I looked, I looked it up, and I didn't realise that's where the current incarnation presumably took their. Um, it's a much older organisation. Took their inspiration. Than I'd yes, that's okay. right. And um, uh, that, uh, this one has been much more successful in <laughs> trousering a billion dollars a year for their own tastes. Uh, than the 1832 version. You've been listening to Looking Forward. Uh, if you're not already a subscriber, please press the appropriate button on your browser or app now. Looking Forward has been brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. To support our research in this podcast, you can join or donate at ipa.org.au. A big thank you to our panellists today, Dr Chris Berg. Thank you. Evan Mulholland. Thanks. Andrew Bushnell. Thank you. And, of course, our producer, James Bolt. Brilliant as always. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.